Oh, everyone who thirsts comes to the waters, and you have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return without watering the earth and making it sprout and bare, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing that for which I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, that it is truth, and it is so good to have truth in a day where everything seems to be coming unglued. We thank you that you never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we come on this Lord's Day thankful that we have the health to be here, thankful once again to be able to lift our hearts and voices together corporately. We humbly ask that the Spirit of God who gave us the text we just read, who gave every single word, every jot and tittle of Scripture, that he would speak to us today. So your servant listens. Come and speak. And please, in your grace and mercy, come and fill me and anoint me and use me for the glory of Jesus. And I ask it in his name. Amen. Would you take your Bibles, please, this morning and turn to the book of 1 Kings. If you're new to the Bible, you can find the Psalms. It's about dead center and then scan to the left. And right after 1 and 2 Samuel and between that 1 and 2 Chronicles, you'll find sandwiched between those two 1 and 2 Kings. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we've been in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. And Elijah lived in very difficult times, times not unlike our own. And the Holy Spirit of God often loves to use a godly man, a godly woman, to teach us truth. And very often, God does great biographical sketches in the Word of God for that very, very reason. And He wants to use people who will challenge us to godly living, to believe God for the kinds of things that they believed God for. Now, before I read our text, beginning in verse 19, where we left off last time, you can see that the title of the message is Burning Your Bridges, or what we might call the cost of discipleship. Now, remember, after the resurrection of Christ and before his ascension, he walked on the earth for 40 days, and he made a number of visits, and he gave the Great Commission more than once. On this occasion, he was not on the Mount of Olives, but he was on a mountain in Galilee, there by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teaching all that I taught you to observe, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, we are to make disciples. 
And the word disciple is being used synonymously in that context of a convert, make converts. He's not saying do discipleship. That's involved in the whole command, but make converts of all nations. And when a person is converted, they'll be baptized. They will symbolically make a confession of their faith. That's a mark of real conversion. But they'll also be willing to receive the full counsel of Scripture. So often today we talk about decisions. An evangelist comes into a city and they said, well, we had so many decisions. Or a mission team comes back from overseas and we had so many people who made a decision for Christ. But really the Scripture doesn't speak so much about decisions as it does conversions. And there's a huge difference. If you want to see if something is really lasting and holy and genuine, come back six months later and see how many of those decisions followed through with a baptism as the confession of faith and a person who is walking with the Lord, learning His truth. Jesus said, you're truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, then you are genuine disciples of mine. And so there are certain marks of conversion in the Scripture. Now, our passage this morning highlights two of God's greatest prophets in all of the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. Some brother wrote me and said, I love your series on Elisha. No, we're doing a series on Elijah, I told him. J comes before S, so Elijah comes before Elisha. But these two men knew each other, and they had a discipleship relationship for many, many years. And we can learn something about their discipleship relationship. Remember, God wrote the Old Testament for our benefit, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequately equipped for every good deed. So Scripture, that includes 1 Kings, is written for our benefit to teach us and to instruct us. Now, with that said, I want to begin by reading our text of Scripture. Sounds like you have found it. 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to begin where we left off last time in verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelve. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Now, as we will see this morning, when Jesus called men to follow him, to be his disciples, there's no question that some followers had this text of Scripture that's in mind. Now, I know the concept of discipleship may be a new concept to some of you, but it certainly was not in Christ's day. The word mathetes, disciples, just meant a learner. And we see a beautiful picture of discipleship between Elijah and Elisha. But understand, in the New Testament, every time you see the word disciple, it's not always used in reference to someone who is born again. Sometimes it is used of an unbeliever, and only the context will show you. 
And so there are people in the four gospels who learn from Jesus. They like what he has to say initially. They want to hear him out, but they don't always commit themselves and entrust themselves to him as Lord and Savior. And so it doesn't always refer to someone who's converted. In the Great Commission, Jesus is speaking of genuine disciples, make converts of all nations. That's part of the Great Commission. Paul speaks of a certain class of women who are always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And the word there for learning is the verbal form of disciple, mafano. They were always learning, always discipling, always grasping information, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth, never being converted. And so as you read the New Testament, you discover there are different kinds of disciples. There are some that we might call curious disciples. They're very curious about this one called Jesus. They're willing to learn from him, but they do not cross the line where they enter into the kingdom of God, and yet they're called disciples. Why? Because they're learners. Hold your finger here and turn to John chapter 6 this morning, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth gospel in the New Testament. And go to John chapter 6. Let me just remind you of the context. There's a miracle that is done the day before the bread of life discourse. It's the feeding of the 20,000. It's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's one of those miracles that is recorded in all four gospels. But what is unique to John's gospel is that he gives the sermon that follows it the next day. So they cross back over the sea and they come to this little place called Capernaum. There's no longer 20,000 people there. They're in the synagogue in Capernaum. And some of you have visited that synagogue with me. And the original floor is underneath the floor that you walk on, but you can see the original floor underneath the floor that you walk on. The current synagogue that goes to the fourth century is a little bit bigger than the original, but the original synagogue would have held about 200 people. And there could have been some people who are spilled out on the outside, but it's no longer a crowd of 20,000. And so Jesus is giving us this sermon. Pick it up, if you will, in verse 37. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is explicitly clear. He didn't come to do his will, but the Father's will. And the Father's will is that every single person who looks to the Son and then makes a decision, believes in him, will definitively be raised up on the last day. There's no leakage between belief and being raised up because the Bible affirms the eternal security of the believer. But this whole idea of coming to Jesus, having to look and to believe in him as the only way to be resurrected to life was an offensive concept to many. And so drop down to verse uh, 43. Jesus says at the end of verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, notice their response down in verse uh, 59. These things he taught in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. 
Therefore, many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? There were people there in the synagogue who've come to the point where they said, enough is enough. We can't take any more. We're getting up. We're leaving. I know the feeling on some Sundays occasionally. This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And the word difficult or hard in some of your translations means not hard to understand, though there were some things that were difficult to understand, but it's a word that means hard to embrace, hard to accept. It's intolerable. It's offensive. Now, there were parts of the sermon that was difficult to understand, but the part they could understand is what bothered them so much. There were people who loved Jesus because of the great things he did. I mean, the day before, he was healing all their sick. And at the end of the day, he fed them all with bread and fish until they had no room, until they were absolutely full of the Texas as much as they wanted. They loved that. But when he began to preach, well, they liked his works, they didn't like his words. And today it's no different. There are people who like Jesus for the good deeds he did, for the orphanages that have been started, for the hunger organizations that have been raised up. They like a lot of his truths, some of the social programs that are based on what he has said. But when you talk about him being the only way to God and the only one who can forgive their sin, they don't always like that. Look at verse 61. But Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Jesus, reading their thoughts, says, does this offend you? And see that word stumbled? It's the Greek word scandalizo. We get our word scandalized from it. Does this scandalize you? Does this offend you? Remember, Jesus claimed to be the only one who could get life, who could raise them up on the great resurrection day, that could give them forgiveness. But for that to happen, they must behold and believe in him. And that really ripped some of them off. Yet they're called disciples because they're learners. They're pseudo-disciples, people who want the benefits of what Jesus was giving that day, but not the teachings and the claims that he was making on their lives. And so true disciples, according to John 8, 31, not only believes his works, but they receive his words. You say, again, why are they called disciples? Because they're just learners. They're curious, but they're not committed. Look at verse 64. The text plainly says, but there are some of you who do not believe. So there are two circles of disciples present the day before and certainly this day in the synagogue in Capernaum. There was the outer circle made up of those who were interested in what he had to say. And then there was the inner circle made up of the apostles who had already crossed the line and had come to believe, the 12. And by the way, when God looks out on this congregation, when he looks out at those who are live streaming, he really sees those who are curious, and so they're tuning in. And then he sees those who are committed, those who've made a decision of the heart. And there are people who just have an intellectual knowledge, and there are those who, with the heart, has believed unto righteousness. And so Jesus knew this multitude, for the text says Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was, Judas, that would betray him. So John uses, among other things, this 
situation to remind us that Jesus is omniscient. That is to say that what he is concluding is not simply by way of observation. He knew from the beginning, and he knew how they would respond. Verse 65, and he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. The Lord is drawing a clear line between those who are drawn by divine restraint. You can resist God. Stephen said, you're always resisting the Spirit in Acts chapter 7, and you can interfere with God's restraint where he stops. So God sees a person who, who responds to the initial convicting work of the Spirit of God, and when their heart says amen to it, then God draws them into salvation. But we can resist the Spirit of God. People speak of irresistible grace. No, the Bible is clear. You can resist because God made you as a free moral agent, what he has said. So there are those who are drawn by divine restraint, and there are others who are drawn and present here in the synagogue in the day before by mistaken ideas of what they thought the Messiah should be. They certainly like the food. They certainly like the miracles. And they certainly like the concept that Messiah had arrived, and for the average Jew in that day, that meant he was going to overthrow Rome, and they were going to have the kingdom of the Old Testament. What they didn't understand is that before the kingdom came, the Messiah would have to die. And there are some people today who entertain Christianity for the same reasons. There's a problem that they want fixed. They're grasping after some healing that some evangelist has promised, but they do not want to come in repentance and faith. Some come to Christ through the manipulation and the trickery of an evangelist. And all you have is a psychological conversion of sorts. Some come to Christ for baser motives, like Judas, who had material gain in view. But unless the Father draws that person, when they are ultimately confronted with the hard sayings of Christ, they can become even active enemies of Christ. And this is why I'm not impressed with the seeker-sensitive movement. Because while it produces great numbers, I don't believe that it is producing genuine conversions, disciples. And so we have pastors who are afraid to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. They'll preach part of it. There's parts that it's like walking through rose petals, and there's other parts that's like walking on thorns. And so they'll even use a Bible, but they refuse to preach the whole counsel because they don't want to be offensive and it will turn off numbers. And yet, as we just learned in verse 63, it's the words of Christ that separate the men from the boys, the believers from the unbelievers. And if you do not teach the words of Christ, if you do not teach the Bible, then you will never be able to separate the real from the spurious. And you will end up with what we would call a curious disciple or a pseudo-disciple. And so, if confronted with the truth, Notice verse 66, and as a result of what Jesus is saying, as a result of this truth, many of his disciples, learners, withdrew and were not walking with him. These Galileans had become like the folks down in Jerusalem. And since Jesus would not trim the message to pander to their wants, many left. What they wanted, he could not give. What he gave, they did not want. And so there's a second category of disciples, not just curious disciples, but then there are what we might call convinced disciples. 
Look at verse uh, 67. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? His apostles had heard the same sermon, and now he comes to a dramatic moment where he challenges the 12. They've observed the reaction of the religious leaders of the day before who grumbled and protested, and now they're observing the reaction of many of the people there in the synagogue in Capernaum. And he pointedly says, you do not want to go away also, do you? And he asks this question, not for his sake, but for their sake. They need to verbalize a decision. They need to articulate a response. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, the question is asked to all the disciples, but Peter, being the leader of leaders, he steps up to the plate and he answers. People make jokes all the time about Peter. Pastors make fun of Peter like he's some spiritual idiot. He's no idiot. He is a great man of God. And some people have some apologizing to do when they meet him. They've not read their Bible very carefully. Remember the night before, after he had done the miracle of feeding 20,000, they get in a boat to go to the other side. He sends them across the Sea of Galilee, and during the middle of the night after they strained at the oars for hours, Jesus appears, and they think it's a ghost, and they hear Jesus' voice, and, and Jesus said, Peter, come out here, walk on the water, and he's the only guy who's willing to get out of the boat, and he's the only human other than the Lord Jesus who ever walked on water. So, Lord, to whom shall we go, he asks. There's no alternative you alone have the words of eternal life. How about you? Are you convinced or are you looking elsewhere? Millions have heard about Christ, but they've gone to Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or to Krishna, or they have adopted the teachings and philosophies of men like Karl Marx or Charles Darwin or Vladimir Lenin. Others have embraced philosophy, whether it's historical philosophy like Plato or Aristotle or modern-day philosophy of humanism. Still others will exchange immorality and riches and fame and alcohol and drugs for Christ, light for darkness, hope for despair, life for death, friendships, and approval by other people instead of the Lord Jesus himself. And Peter says, Lord, there's no other options for us. To whom shall we go? It would be futility to try to go anywhere else because you have the words of eternal life. And then Peter boldly says, notice in verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Don't miss what he's saying. There's no doubt in our minds. We have believed it's a Dundale, and we know by experience that you are the Holy One of God. And please note the order. It is always first belief and then experiential knowledge second. We have believed and have come to know. People say, oh, if God would just prove himself to me, if God would just give me some kind of a feeling, if God would just give me some kind of experience or this or that, and the Word of God repeatedly throughout both Testaments always affirms that the true believer must first respond to the integrity of what God has said, and only then and only then does the experience follow. And even for the new covenant believer, you believe on the Lord Jesus. 
You come in faith on the integrity of his word that his death, burial, and resurrection can forgive you and change you. You switch from self-lordship to Christ as Lord, and then and only then will the Spirit of God show you that you become a child of God. So first you believe, then you come to know by way of experience, and the order is always the same. But there's a third group of disciples that are described in the New Testament. There's the curious disciples, and Christ always wants to move them to become committed disciples. But then there are committed disciples. They are saved, and Christ wants them to grow and mature and to become contributing disciples. And a contributing disciple is not one who has simply embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they have grown to the point where they are making an impact in the kingdom of God. They care about the unchurched. They care about the lost. They care about God's people. They are involved and engaged in discipling and encouraging other people. My point in all of this is to say is that it's possible to have made a commitment to the Lord Jesus and not to have made much of a contribution. And sometimes people don't contribute much because they haven't grown much. And sometimes the fault of that comes back on the pulpit. The sheep look up for food and they get nothing week after week. Without food, you can't grow and mature. But then there are some who, well, they've become self-satisfied. And they will have great regrets at the judgment of the just, at the judgment seat of Christ. So to the curious, unsaved person, Jesus would call them to his lordship. But to the one who is convinced, he would call them to go deeper. And that's why there's hundreds of commands in the New Testament to save people to go further with Jesus. Now, with that backdrop on discipleship, I want us to explore our passage today. Because what we find here are three principles that must be true in the life of a believer if they're going to be a disciple-making, contributing member of the body of Christ. Number one, a contributing disciple recognizes that there's a person to follow. If you are ever to be a contributing disciple, you will recognize that there is a person to follow. Look now at 1 Kings 19 and verse 19. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. Now, I know some are walking into this passage for the first time, so let me just briefly refresh the context as to where we have been. Elijah has witnessed the power of God starting after he announced a, a drought that would last for years, and he escapes to a brook called Cherith, and there God supernaturally brings ravens every day to bring him meat and bread. And, and in addition, there's a brook there that he's able to enjoy water from, and God sustains him there for nearly three years. And then the brook dries up, and God moves him directly into enemy territory. And if you remember, in a town called Zarephath, he meets a widow there, and he asked her for a meal, and she said, I've only got enough for me and my son. We're going to eat our last meal, and we're going to die. And he asked her to respond in faith, and she listens to the man of God, and the jar never goes dry with oil, and the flour is continually full. And then it's through that, if you remember, that Elijah then is confronted by this widow with this dead boy. And he believes God. 
the first person in all of human history to raise someone from the dead. And with that vim and vigor and vitality, as chapter 18 records, he could stand before the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, and God supernaturally calls fire down from heaven and does a miracle. And then he earnestly prays in his prayer, literally, he earnestly prays and God brings the end of the drought. And you read this stuff and you say, man, he's a superman. And James reminds us, no, Elijah was a, was a man with a nature just like ours. And so then we came into chapter 19. And if you were here last time, we studied the first 18 verses. And we see how Elijah hits a tidal wave of discouragement. Again, he's made of the same human tissue that you and I are made out of, and he is subject to the same kinds of challenges. So after God uses him to bring fire down from heaven to cause the rain to come, Ahab goes home after Elijah outruns his chariot all the way down to Jezreel. He gives a report of how miserable the day was. And we read in verse 2 of this chapter, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. If I don't cut off your neck by this time tomorrow, if I don't kill you within the next 24 hours, may my gods do the same to me. Here's a woman with a callous heart. She had the, heard the same revelation. It was all over town. All the prophets are dead. God did a miracle. No one could deny it. And you would have thought it would have brought this couple to repentance, but it does not. She will not change her mind, verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Run, Elijah, run. He's got the Jezebel jitters. Here's a map just to refresh your memory where we're at. Up here in the north, just south of the Sea of uh, Galilee, the Jordan River comes down to the Dead Sea, and just north of the Dead Sea is this place called Jezreel. He leaves Jezreel, and he goes south to Bathsheba. It's 120 miles. And if you remember the rest of the chapter, before he's done, he's going to make his way down to the Mount of Horeb, also called Mount Sinai in Scripture, the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the covenant-making place. So it's the natural place that God is going to have him to go to. So he gets to Bathsheba. And the text tells us what he did, verse 4, but he himself, all alone, separated from other people, went a day's journey into the wilderness. So here's this man of God who proved that Baal was no God at all, no entity at all, and he's scared to death. He's lost perspective. He's discouraged. And it's easy for any of us to get discouraged when we don't believe what we're saying today. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And day after day after day after day after day, God shows his faithfulness. I was reminding someone recently, God has been faithful to you for these three years. He is going to be faithful through this summer for you. And it's not enough to go at 120 miles. He goes another day's journey by biblical standards. That's another 15 miles or so. 
into the wilderness. And this text says he came and sat down under a juniper tree. Some of your Bibles say a broom tree. Remember, here's a picture of a juniper tree. If you've been to the Dead Sea and that whole area and all the way down to Bathsheba, it's, it's just as dry as a bone. I mean, it rains for a short time. The floods come down off of those mountains. Everything's green for about a month. Enough grass grows for the goats to feed on them throughout the summer. But it's a dry, barren place. But there is a beautiful juniper tree. It's a great shade tree, and it's able to grow on this rugged terrain. And oftentimes, that's what discouraged people do. They get alone when they really need other people. Discouragement and loneliness are often Siamese twins. It would have been much better for him to have come alongside another believer. But he sits under a juniper tree. Notice he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Lord, I've had it. I'm turning in my prophet's badge. Kill me, Lord. I'm no better than my father's. Everybody killed them. You might as well take me. I've had it. And thank God he didn't answer that prayer. I think of some of the moronic things that I prayed for in my life, and thank God he said no. And so this is one tired prophet. And God ministers to him as he delivers food twice by an angel. He awakes after a long, well-deserved sleep, and he makes his way down to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And when he is there, God gives him three responsibilities. Pick it up in verse 15, where we were last time. The Lord, Yahweh, said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now he's going to go all the way north, past north of the Sea of Galilee, all the way up into Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram, that's the first job that he has to do. God has a job for him. You need to get back to work, back into the ministry, get out of this introspective mode, go back to ministry. In addition, there's a second king he is to anoint, verse 16. In Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And then the third task that brings us into our text this morning. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abimeholah, you shall anoint him as prophet in your place. So his third responsibility is to find this young man named Elisha because he's going to draft him into prophetic service. Now, that does not mean that he's relieved of his duties. God is not saying, hey, I used you in a great, tremendous way, but you got so despondent and so depressed, I've got a replacement. Not at all. He's going to give him a compatriot in the ministry, but he's also going to give him one to disciple. And when you read the, the chapters that follow, it just seems so quick. But you have to read the chronology carefully because he has this relationship with Elisha where he disciples him. And based on the chronology of the text, it's somewhere between eight and 10 years before God ever sweeps him up into heaven in that marvelous chariot ride. So go find an associate. He's going to shoulder your burden. I've already picked him out for you. Remember, James says he's a man with a nature just like ours. He had forgotten God's promises. He had forgotten God's provisions. He had forgotten God's power. He's restored. He's refreshed. So, verse 19, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. And he with the 12th, and Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. Elijah found Elisha who is hard at work on a farm. 
And by the way, that, among other reasons, is, I think, why God chose this man. Not only did he have a heart for God, but he had a heart for hard work. Put out in the margin next to verse 19, 2 Timothy 2.6, 2 Timothy 2.6. Paul is calling pastors, Timothy, by uh, application in the context of 2 Timothy 2, but by application, all pastors, to work hard. And he gives three illusions of what hard work looks like. And one of the illusions is that of a farmer. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. And the Greek word for hardworking means work to the point of exhaustion. And it is indispensable to God's work. And let me just say, here's your Father's Day sermon. One of the things that we should do as fathers and that you might help your sons or daughters do as a grandfather is to teach your children how to work hard. You ought to teach them to work until they're red in the face and their tongue is hanging. This young man came to our house and my sons were trimming the, you know, the edge along the street And this boy was 12 years old. He said, I thought it just grew that way. Overwhelmed with privilege. And we have a generation of kids who know how to play video games, but they don't know how to operate a lawnmower. Oh, we can pay to have it done. Maybe you can, but maybe you could pay to get your kids to sweat a little bit. The book of Proverbs reminds us over and over and over again that sluggards never make good farmers. And lazy people are never successful in church ministry. And lazy pastors are never successful as pastors. And the notion of hard work in ministry doesn't really sell in this day of uh, feel-good Christianity. Add to that, you've got some Christians who talk about resting to the exclusion of working. You just rest in the Lord. We are to rest in the Lord, but it's not an either or, it's a both and. When Paul wrote the church at Corinth, listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We are to work hard as we rest in the grace of God. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life and ministry, then you know that in an exceptional way, God's favor was over his life. And I'm sure there are many explanations for that. And I certainly do not want to take away from the sovereignty of God over his life, nor the power of God through his life. But lest we forget there was a zeal and there was a zest and there was an endless devotion of this man to work very hard. And I meet lazy Christians, I meet lazy pastors, and they want God to bless their ministry. And they're not willing to work hard. Hard work is part of ministry for the Lord. You know, it is hard work to prepare to teach that children's class. It is hard work to prepare to teach that ABF. It is hard work to work with those children. My wife is there in the first hour every week in the little nursery, and she said, Carl, this young couple came in first time ever, and they gave me their baby, and two minutes later, he was Mr. Fusshead the whole time. But I was determined that this couple would not be called, and I worked with that baby, and she said, I am exhausted. 
hard work to learn the music sometimes if you really want to do it well. It is hard work to take responsibility as a deacon with your families. It is hard work to park the cars, especially when it's cold and it's wet. It's hard work, and it's not by accident that God often chooses shepherds and farmers and fishermen and others who know how to put in a hard day's work. So here's this brother. He's out there working hard on the farm. Verse 19 again. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12. Now this gives us a picture He's acting as the crew chief, so he has certain leadership skills because he's the 12th man. And he's got the 11 sets plowing before him. And each have a set of oxen. It reminds me of those farm pictures where, you know, an echelon formation, you got one tractor behind another, behind another, behind another. That's the picture here. This is no small operation. And no doubt that his father, Shaphat, was an influential leader because verse 16 calls the town Abel Mehola. Abel Mehola. It's two Hebrew words that literally mean meadow of dancing. In the Hebrew scriptures, oftentimes a place is named after an event that took place or a certain person, or very often and most often, what the town, what the place was actually like. This was a meadow of dancing. Why? Because there was a lot of happiness, a lot of joy. It was some rich farmland. And these people were blessed. If this were a Hallmark movie, we'd call it Happy Valley or something like that. Now, the last part of verse 19 tells us that Elijah evidently walked across the field to where Elisha was, where he's plowing. Notice. And Elijah passed over him and threw his mantle on him. Now, the Hebrew word for mantle is adoreth, and it's a word that literally means glory or honor. And so when Elijah takes the mantle and he places it on Elisha's shoulder, he is giving him his glory, his honor. Everyone knew what it meant. Everyone knew that Elijah was saying, you are going to be my protege. You're going to be my disciple should you take it. The mantle of a prophet was the sign and signature of the prophet. It stood for all that he represented, for all that he taught. And so Elijah is calling Elisha by the will of God because God dictated this into full-time ministry. I want you to come, Elisha, and I want you to follow me. And in so doing, I'm going to pass the authority of my office to you. And Elisha understood precisely what God was calling him to through his prophet. He understood that, and he immediately goes. At the beginning of verse 20, we read, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And then if you will notice again in verse 21, he arose and followed Elijah. I had them both underlined in my Bible. Now, getting back to this concept of being a disciple, in New Testament terms, Elisha is both convinced and he is going to be a contributing disciple. Clearly, Elisha, in following and ministering to Elijah, is following and ministering to his Lord. And if you and I are ever going to be a contributing disciple, then among other things, we need to carry out the unique plan that God has for our lives. We must first recognize the call to be a disciple. It's called salvation. But we must recognize that God has a plan 
and he has a person for you to follow. It was not simply that Elisha was following Elijah. Elijah was the man of God. God had given him explicit instructions as we saw, go in, anoint this man to be your prophet. And this man knew who Elijah was. Everyone in the country knew who Elijah was, that he was God's representative and that God was calling him into the ministry. And understand that when God calls you into the great commission, which he has called every child of God to, he's not calling you to a movement. He's not calling you to an organization. He is calling you to a person, and his name is Jesus. Hold your finger here and turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. Go to Luke chapter 10. I want you to see something that's very, very important. Luke chapter 10. If you lose perspective and you think that God's call first is to some plan or a movement or an organization, sooner or later, you're just going to grow weary. Perspective always influences outcome. And nowhere is that more true than in this process of discipleship. Look at Luke chapter 10, and let's start in verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, it's Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his words. Now, if you're new to the Bible, there's this family. Mary and Martha are sisters. They had a brother named Lazarus, and they lived in a little town called Bethany. If uh, you were standing on the Mount, uh, the Temple Mount, you look right across to the Mount of Olives. And on the backside of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem, is this little town called Bethany. Tourists don't go there today. It's an Arab town, and it's not all that friendly to tourists, so typically no one ever goes there. Uh, I've always wanted to go there, but it's just a place they don't let you go. So here they are in Bethany, and this family loved Jesus, cared for Jesus. It was a place that he would often be. They would feed him and take good care of him. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Now, you can imagine, here's a woman who wants everything to be perfect when Jesus shows up. This is not just anyone. These people are convinced that this is God in a body. She wants it right. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you can almost hear the love in his voice, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, why does the Lord Jesus give this ever so kind and gentle rebuke to Martha? I mean, someone had to cook the meal and be, be a servant. Now, please understand, he is not reprimanding her for all of her preparations, for literally her much service is the margin here, the NASB renders it. He was rebuking her because she was distracted, meaning she was pulled away, literally. The King James says she was cumbered. And then in the very next verse, verse 41, she was worried and bothered. She's out of fellowship with the Lord. Why? Because she's not spending time with the Lord Jesus, and that was really more important right now, listening to his word. She's serving hard in the kitchen, 
But her service obviously is not an overflow of her relationship with her Lord. And this is a very important principle that runs through the New Testament scriptures, that with much service, there must be much communion. That if you're going to serve the Lord Jesus, it needs to come out of a close relationship with him. Time with Christ always takes precedent over activity for Christ. Some mornings I wake up early and I look at the day in front of me and I say, Lord Jesus, you're going to have to help me. And the temptation is just to go and to get into it. And I said, no, I'm going to spend this hour with you and we're going to have this time alone because it is so critical for me to be successful and to serve you. But here's a woman, she's committing what I would call a Christian sin. She's not out of fellowship because she's out carousing or she got drunk or... Now, her sin is she's not being with the Lord. She's not in his presence. And so she's bothered. And sometimes when people come to the church and all they can do is find fault, and they say, well, you should do it this way. This is what we did back in our church. And they're crabby and they're irritable. And, you know, those are usually people who don't spend time with Christ. I frequently see that as a pastor. And let me just say, if, if your service has become burdensome, and you've lost the joy for whatever kind of ministry God has given you, almost always it's indicative that you're not really spending time, not in a mechanical sense, but I mean just time with the Lord where he speaks to you and refreshes you. And very often what people then do is they just quit. I'm not serving anymore. Let someone else do it. They think that's the solution. They sit, soak, and they sour, they don't really serve. Very often, people come into my office and occasionally, what's the problem? I'm just worn out. I'm burned out. Let me ask you a question. Tell me about your devotional life. I mean, your time with the little Lord. And almost always with an embarrassing look. You know, I don't really have one, Pastor. That's the real problem. Look at his counsel. One thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from you. There's two kinds of Christians who are sitting with me today. There are some who are very diligent, who want to serve with the best intentions, but they're doing it at the expense of spending time with Jesus, of being in close fellowship with him. And one thing is necessary. And the good part that Jesus underscores was listening to his word. Now, I know the Bible does not say, thou shalt have a daily quiet time. So I'm not talking about some rigid legalism here. But there are many, many, many passages throughout the Bible that affirm of our need to linger in the presence of God. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And it will not be taken away from her because it yields fruitfulness. And whereas the person who serves out of an irritable, crabby, joyless spirit, they may be working their behind off. But it will be wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you are to be a contributing disciple, there's a person that you are called to serve, in to follow. In addition, the scripture affirms a contributing disciple recognizes there's a people to serve. 
There's a person to follow, but there's a people to serve. Again, we read here, beginning in verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And then again in verse 21, then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. So Elijah's first response to the call in that he he wants to immediately minister to him. He is a servant. And when you follow the Lord and when you're really following him, you're going to be serving other people. And this man was usable because he had a servant's heart. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, next to verse 21, 2 Kings 3.11. 2 Kings 3.11, let me read it to you. After God has taken Elijah up to heaven in a chariot ride, and he's raptured up into heaven, Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, new king in place, will ask this question. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? that we may inquire of the Lord by him. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, and listen very carefully to his answer because his description of Elisha the prophet is very telling of the kind of person he is. One of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shephard is here, who used to pour water in the hands of Elijah. Now that's a significant statement. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's humble service. You see, a Jew would have to have his hands ceremonially cleaned. And rather than Elijah having to go to the well and to draw his own water, Elisha would get the water such that every time he needed to eat, he would pour the water on his hands. And so he had a posture, he had an attitude of servanthood towards this man of God. And if you are ever going to be used of God, if you're ever going to do anything that is lasting and holy and eternal, among other things, you must be a servant. Listen to some of these verses, Galatians 5 and verse 13. Paul says, for you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom. Don't don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serving one another. There's an assumption that we serve one another. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servants. Or Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When God saved you, he gifted you. It's different from a natural talent like singing or a mechanical skill. You have a spiritual gift. And as you grow in Christ, that gift will begin to show itself, whatever it might be. It might be the gift of giving. It might be evangelism. It might be teaching, serving, helps, administration. But you have a gift. And just like a baby, as a baby grows, there are natural talents that God bred into them at the moment of conception begin to manifest themselves, even so in the spiritual realm. And so God wants to ideally match your giftedness with an area of responsibility. Though in the non-signed gifts in the New Testament, we all share a common responsibility. So you can't, as a cop-out, say, well, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't tithe, or I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't share my faith. No, there's a common responsibility with all 16 non-signed gifts in the New Testament. But the assumption here is that we will serve one another. It's one of the many one another passages. We studied this one last week. Remember John 13, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. 
This is a truth that if you remember, Jesus applies to other situations. A slave is not greater than his master, whether it's in persecution in John 15, whether it's in slander in Matthew 10, whether it's in discipleship in Luke 6, or here in John 13 in reference to a servant. If I, the master in the center, got down and washed your feet, served you, you ought to wash each other's feet. You ought to serve others. And so a contributing disciple is one who is willing to lay aside his dignity and do the work of a servant. Paul said it this way, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you want God to bless your life, then you need to be a contributing disciple. And a contributing disciple is a, recognizes there's a person to follow, there's a people to serve. Third and finally, a contributing disciple recognizes there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay. Elijah first follows the Lord by following his call to take Elijah's place. And in so doing, he becomes this man's servant. He ministers to him, but not without having to consider the price. Look again in verse 19. Elijah finds Elisha when he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. I don't cut my yard with a bush hog because I don't have that much land. But this information that this writer gives tells us that this family has a lot of land. And some people have a lot of land and they are land poor. But this family has a lot of land and they are wealthy. How do I know? Because they have 12 pairs of oxen. Now, as you read in Scripture, sometimes you'll read in the law about barring things, and very often people would bar someone else's oxen because they didn't have enough money to own their own pair of oxen. Well, Elijah's, Elisha's family has 24 oxen, 12 that are yoked together in pairs, which says by biblical standards he was a very wealthy man. Let's keep reading into verse 21. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elisha. Elisha was saying, I will leave this and I will go and I will follow you. But in addition to wanting to show honor to his father and mother, which the fifth commandment teaches, continuing here in verse 20, please he asks, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, that's an important Hebrew idiom. For what have I done to you? You go back to your parents, that's the right thing. But I want you to think very carefully what I just did for you when I put my mantle on your back. His immediate response is yes. He wants to go home and say goodbye. And please understand, he's not waffling. This is not some compromise on Elisha's part. He is going back out of respect to his parents to let them know that he was leaving, not to get permission to leave. This idiom, what have I done to you? 
Think hard, Elisha. Think about what I am doing by this act. Count the cost when I put this mantle on your back. Lord, you go home and you think hard. It's a really important decision. He wants him to count the cost. He wants him, as the sermon title explores, to burn every bridge. So he returned from following him, verse 21, and took the pair of oxen. He didn't destroy all 12 pairs because he, as a son, was entrusted with one pair. One pair was his own. His daddy, I'm assuming, unless he had other brothers that we are not aware of, his daddy owned the rest. So we returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. You've heard about burning your bridges. Well, he's going to eat his bridge, so to speak. He seals the decision and he makes it public. He slaughters the two oxen. He uses the wood of the yoke to create a fire to barbecue and he invites all the neighbors to participate with him in this great feast. There's a new calling on his life and he is willing to burn his bridges to get rid of every source of income that he would have had with his oxen and to follow Elijah. And by his action, he is saying to his parents, to his friends, that this ranch, these oxen, this plow is not as important to me as the call that God has placed on my life. He wants to please the Lord. Listen, if you want to please the Lord, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you please man and you don't please God, well, it means nothing. All that matters is that we please the Lord. And if you're looking for some easy way, some cheap way, some lazy way to make a difference in the kingdom of God, you won't. I mean, it's rainy, it's cold. You look out the window, it's Sunday morning, you say to your wife, let's just live stream Dr. Brogy this morning. Have you ever done that? Don't answer. Now the next day, it's just as cold and just as rainy. And you tell your boss, well, I decided not to go to work today. Why not? Oh, it was cold and rainy, and I didn't feel like getting up. Or you say, you know, we had friends come unexpectedly out of town, and they wanted to go to the beach, so we went to the beach with them. Now, you wouldn't do that with your boss, but we'll do that with a living God who gave us life and breath and eternal life. You do what's important to you, and so every fall, every winter, we see 70, 80,000 fans in some stadium. It's cold, it's snowy, it's below zero sometimes. Some of them have no shirts on, and they're cheering their football team. You do what's important to you. So Christ asks us to count the cost. Hold your finger here. Go back to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 for a moment. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus is walking along the road, and there's a large crowd that is with him. And in Luke 9, 57, someone said this to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Now, if you looked in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 8, you find out that this someone who made this statement was a scribe. And a scribe in Jesus' day was a person of wealth and reputation. It would carry the prestige of being the CEO of an organization or maybe a physician or an attorney or a politician or some big shot. And so Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew that his status and his comfort was more important to him than really following Jesus. A second man said to him in verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. Now, there's a Jewish burial custom that goes all the way back to the time of Moses. It was still in place in Christ's day. Usually the time someone died is the day you buried them. If you go to Israel today, if I died this morning, had a heart attack, and I was in Jerusalem and a Jew, and I had a heart attack here at this second service, I'd be buried before sundown. And if I was buried late in the day, I would definitively, absolutely, orthodox, non-orthodox, practicing, non-practicing, I would be baptized the very next day. That's why when you study the chronology on Lazarus' life, and he had been dead four days, he stinketh, Lord. The day he died, as you read the text, they buried him. So when he says, oh, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father, it sounds like a reasonable excuse, except for the fact that his dad hadn't died yet. He's waiting around for the inheritance. And Jesus basically says, you have to choose. Jesus would not have dishonored that request if it were legitimate. Not to mention, if he had to deal with his dead daddy, ceremonially, he'd be unclean. And they were still under the old covenant, and Jesus practiced the old covenant until the new covenant is initiated on Golgotha. So Jesus persists with him, but he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Then a third fellow comes along, and this person, unlike the scribe who's protecting his reputation, who's in love with uh, this guy who's in love with riches... There's a third guy, notice verse, oh, let me just read this verse first, Luke 14, 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You might want to put that in the margin next to verse 60. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you said, God, everything I own, it's yours? It is already. God owns everything in the world. Psalm 24, 1. We're just stewards. But if you have not mentally in your mind before the Lord given everything that you have to him, then those things will own you. You won't own them. So this third man, verse 61, let me pick it up. I will follow you, Lord, but permit me first to say goodbye to those at home. Now, no doubt he may have been reasoning from our text. Hey, I heard this in the scriptures Elisha put that on Elijah, and Elijah was a man of God, and he accepted that. You go home. Say bye to dad and mom. But Jesus, who could read his heart, said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, this third man's problem is not riches. It's not reputation like the scribe. 
It's relationships. He loved his family more than he loved God. Years ago, in fact, Jerry Stokes and I were in a home, and we shared the gospel with a young couple, and he seemed so open and so close to becoming a Christian, but his wife was pulling him away, and she was antagonistic. And so neither of them made a decision that night, and we got in the car, and I said, she was pulling on his heart, and he listened to her. And how do I know that? Because a week later, I bumped into him in Walmart. And I said, you know, it just seemed like you were so close to becoming a Christian. He said, well, I gave it a lot of thought. I said, well, what's the holdup? Well, my wife doesn't buy this stuff. And basically says, I buy my wife. Ten years go by, and I just recently bump into him again in Walmart. He knows who I am. I know who he is. The only difference is this time he's hostile. You see, you can love father and mother, wife, son, daughter more than God and miss the kingdom of God. May I remind you what Jesus said in John 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that's an interesting verse because Jesus had a ministry that was founded on a way of love, not hate. And yet here he uses this word hate, but he's using it in a comparative sense as a hyperbole of sorts. Pretty obviously what Jesus did not mean. He did not actually mean that you should break the fifth commandment, that you should dishonor your parents, that you should despise father and mother, the first commandment with a promise, Paul says. But he wants the difference between our love by comparison to our love for everyone else to be so great that you could almost say it is hatred. In fact, in the parallel text on another day, another time, he says the same thing, but in these words, in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of course, the truth is, is that when you love Jesus, you will love your father and mother and brother and sister, not less, but more. But he is clear that our love for him must supersede our love for everyone else. In fact, right before that, he said this in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Again, typically, when you're born again, when you become a genuine disciple, you love your family more faithfully than you had ever done before. But understand, many people never enter into the kingdom of God because of another form of idolatry, and it is so subtle. You're going to become one of those born again? We've heard about those people at Community Bible Church. You're going to become one of them? And they begin to pressure them. Dad, I don't want to disappoint you. Well, you know, there's a decision that you need to make as a family. And there are family members saying, look, what we're asking you to do isn't all that bad. But it is for you because you understand God's standards. 
and you love Christ more than anyone else supremely, and you have to decide. And many people will never enter the kingdom of God because of pressure from other people. Someone asked a missionary one day, he said, do you like being missionaries? And he wasn't prepared for the answer the husband gave. He said, my wife and I love the people that we serve. It is so thrilling to us when people come and call Christ Lord and follow him. But we don't especially like being missionaries. My wife and I don't especially like living on a dirt floor. We don't especially like traping through dung in the village every single day. We don't especially enjoy some of the dirty and filthy habits that people have. But as a man to do nothing because he doesn't like something, God pities someone who makes a decision, he said, on like or dislike. He said, I am a missionary because I am following my Lord. Wilbur Chapman, the great 19th century evangelist, encountered William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army one day. And he said, General Booth, God has used you in an extraordinary way. What would you say the secret of your life and ministry is? And General Booth said this, and I quote, I will tell you the secret. God has all there is of me to have. There have been men and women who have had far greater opportunities than I men and women whom God has gifted in a far greater way than I. But from the day I understood how much Jesus loved me, I gave all to him. My friend, God will do business with those who mean business. And if you want to be a contributing disciple, there's a person to follow, there's a people to serve, but there is a price to pay. Would you say this morning, I don't want to just be a member of Community Bible Church. I want to be a contributing disciple. I want to make a difference in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Will you say that? You can make a difference with your life. Now, Holy Father, we thank you that this is not simply what you have said. This is what you are saying, that all Scripture is God-breathed. It is profitable for our instruction that the man, the woman of God, might be adequately equipped for every good work. Thank you for the lessons that we are learning from Elijah the, Pro Elijah the prophet and Elisha. I pray today, Father, for someone who is just a curious disciple. They're here, they're live streaming because they're curious, they're listening, but they've never made a commitment to trust Jesus as Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you receive sinful men, that whoever will call upon your name will be saved. Help someone, whatever the cost may be, even if it means total rejection of their family. Help them to see what is really important in life and help them to know that even the rejection of their family and their continued love might be the very tool and goad that you would use to bring that family into the kingdom. Help someone, Father, in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, Save me. Now, Father, it's easy to take a sense of pride that we've crossed that line, that we're members of the kingdom, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
but to ignore that you always call us to go further and deeper, that there are hundreds of commands in the New Testament to your saved people to go further. So help us to pay the price, whatever it might be, whatever hatred or persecution or slander or inconvenience that might come into our life, help us to live for Jesus, for his name's sake. Amen.